1963, Dr. Martin Luther King sat somewhat dispirited in a Birmingham, Alabama jail cell, writing in part about his frustrations with white America. The famous letter from a Birmingham jail is often cited for its assertions about the injustice of Jim Crow and the movement that, in the early 1960s, was growing out of African-American desire to achieve full equality. There are memorable lines about black power, about white racists, and about the strength that comes from struggle. But there's also this damning quote about the role that moderate white Americans were playing at that time. Those who, by the early 1960s, were somewhat supportive of civil rights, but they were also a little more comfortable with order than with the disruption that might deliver justice. On this episode of Created Equal, we'll look at what is required of the privileged in order to make positive change for marginalized people. And we'll hear a story about one woman who sacrificed everything for the greater good. I'm Laura Weber Davis. And I'm Stephen Henderson from WDET in Detroit. This is Created Equal. In this country, our courts are the great levelers. And that the rights of every man are diminished. And the rights of one man are threatened. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We found it on the principle. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. All right, so let's start with an idea that I know is going to make some people a little uncomfortable. It's just a word. But in our modern discourse, it can hit with the force of a punch in the nose. Here's the word. Privilege. Here's another phrase. White privilege. Male privilege. Moneyed privilege. In the spaces where we talk about inequality, these phrases have real meaning and real currency. They're important things to understand, but they also have almost the instant effect of raising someone's defenses. If I say to a white person, for instance, that privilege helps explain their ability to talk back to the cops without much fear of a violent reaction, a lot of people take that as an accusation, as opposed to a vehicle for discussing why and how inequality persists. A large part of the problem here is that most people don't feel privileged. They look at areas of their lives where they feel disadvantaged or helpless, and then they think that there is no break being given to them it becomes increasingly difficult to see how they are unduly rewarded by society for something they have no say over, like race or sex or class. It can quickly become this internal dialogue. Why should I help you when I have to help myself? You need to help yourself. Yeah, we hear that a lot. And it comes down to this. Privilege carries over. It doesn't die. It holds on beyond the end of slavery or Jim Crow. It survives women's suffrage or the breakthrough of legalized gay marriage. It's not subject to policy or law. It's a foundational dynamic built into the fabric of our culture and society, and it gets passed on, sometimes unwittingly, from one generation to the next. It's not about an accusation. It's just about a reality. Privilege is something to be acknowledged and understood as a lens through which one has to view inequality and the path toward equality. 
One woman who got that point was Viola Liuzzo. She was a white woman who, from a very early age, cared about the plight of African Americans. That's Kim Trent, a former journalist, and she's on the Board of Governors at Wayne State University. That's where Viola was a nursing student in the mid-1960s. You know, she really was working against her own privilege. Everything she had was because of her husband's um, privilege as a white man. And even with that, she was so committed to and so horrified by the the way the African Americans were treated, particularly in the South. Viola Liuzzo was a white woman who decided that she needed to be a part of this epic struggle to erase centuries of inequality for African Americans. Privilege she had. A stable life as a housewife in Detroit, far from the messy and often dangerous demonstrations taking place in the Jim Crow South. She set that aside to join the marches in Selma, Alabama in 1965. And just two years earlier, in 1963, Dr. King was sitting in that Birmingham jail cell after protesting when the state of Alabama had told him he couldn't. And he penned these words. I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the absence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Viola Liuzzo lived an average life, but she refused to live exclusively in the space of her privilege. She would not be, as Dr. King wrote, a white moderate. Viola Liuzzo was a a housewife. She was someone who was a very loving mother. She actually had a very close friend who was who took care of her children, who was a black woman. And from her earliest days, even when she was in her 20s, she was a member of the NAACP, which was radical when you're talking about the 1950s. This march intends to keep off the highway. We will be marching on the shoulder of the road and will not in any way be interfering with the pursuit of traffic. As she... Um, watching you know, the scenes from the first and second march or attempted aborted march, marches when they tried to march from Selma to Montgomery and were thwarted, you know, those scenes were broadcast on television. And I think in a lot of ways it was awake, an awakening for a lot of people who, you know, kind of had a feeling that things in the South were bad, but then when you actually see dogs being sicked on people, I mean, this wasn't the first time that, that people had seen that kind of, Im- kind of imagery. But it was so brutal, it was so bloody. You know, it was actually called Bloody Sunday because of how horrible it was. It would be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse your order to disperse your We have the right to walk to Montgomery if our feet can get us there. And I think when she saw that on television and she was horrified, she was angry, um, I understand, tears were shed, and she turned to her husband and said, you know, I'm, I'm going. We must let the nation know and we must let the world know that it is necessary to protest this threefold evil. 
I'm not really a road trip kind of gal. I don't really enjoy long trips. She drove from Detroit to Alabama by herself in her Oldsmobile. I mean, that alone to me is just really badass. Like, who does that? I mean, you know, she went by herself. That just says to me, it speaks volumes about how committed she was to going. Pick him up and lay him down. Right, right. Pick him up and lay him down. Right, right. Pick him up and lay him down. Right, right. All the way from Selma Town. Right, right. I'm calling into federal service selected units of the Alabama National Guard. And also, we'll have available police units from the regular army to help meet state responsibilities. These forces should be adequate to assure the rights of American citizens pursuant to a federal court order to walk peaceably and safely without injury or loss of life from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. I don't think, you know, her children were still quite young. I don't think that they had a full understanding of the danger that her mother, their mother was placing herself in, but she did. She really understood that taking that action was, you know, in some ways putting her life in danger. When I talked to her children about what they faced from other white families on the west side of Detroit, they grew up on the west side of Detroit, a lot of mothers were very angry at Viola Liuzzo because they also knew that she was taking her life in her own hands when she did that. And they thought it was irresponsible, you know, when you're a mother of five children to make that decision. You think it's all been due to outsiders? I think it's definitely been due to outsiders. I noticed yesterday in the um, in the march, a group of my friends and I stood there, and we were able to count five local ne- uh, Negroes in the whole uh, march. Do you think there are many communists in this procession? I think it's possibly made up of three... One-fourth communist and, and uh, one-half pro-communist. We have people coming in from all over the country. I suspect that we will have representatives from almost every state in the Union and naturally a large number of people from the state of Alabama. And we hope to see and we plan to see the greatest witness for freedom ever taken place that has ever taken place on the steps of the capital of any state in the South. And this whole march adds drama to this total thrust. She completed the march, and then she was in Montgomery working at a nursing station. So she had actually completed her duty. Her duty was um, as a volunteer. She was working, as you uh, may know, she was a nursing student at Wayne State University at the time of her death. So she used those talents to um, help marchers. You know, when you do a 50-mile walk, you know, people were having all kinds of problems with their feet and with, you know, aches and pains and and whatever else um, they encountered. So she was working at this nursing station. She had actually completed, and she volunteered. In fact, she insisted, you know, she could have just said, okay, well, I did my part. I can go back to Detroit and continue my life. But she said that she wanted to help drive um, people back to the start of the march, which was 50 miles away in Selma. When she took Leroy Moten into her car, Leroy Moten was a young African-American male. She knew the dynamics. A lot of what happened with the civil rights movement and segregation itself was really driven by this idea fighting against miscegenation, what they called miscegenation at the time. This idea that black men were obsessed with white women. 
And she knew getting into a car with a, a black youth, you know, was a dangerous thing to do. And so I'm sure that there was probably hesitation on both sides, particularly just because it was her and just this one other passenger. So she got in the car, she drove, and, um, you know, a car full of Klansmen chased her. She actually tried to outrun them. She was driving a, an Oldsmobile, and so, but she was in this car with this um, black young man, and a car full of Klansmen tried to run her off the road. She tried to outrun them, and then, sadly, they were successful, and then one of them shot her in the head. Talk a little bit about what Viola Liuzzo um, sacrificed, even in making the trip down south, knowing that she could be putting herself in harm's way. In some ways, it's it's not even something that I can conceive, to be honest with you. And I, I consider myself to be a fairly brave person. I'm not someone who kind of cowers and is afraid to say things. But there's a big difference between saying things and taking action where you know you are putting your you know your life in danger, especially when you you know when you have a child, when you have five children. Um, her youngest daughter was only six years old when this happened. You know, I think that that's why a lot of people have framed this as an act of naivete that she could not have known. But I think that she did. And I think that she thought the sacrifice was worth it. I don't think that she, of course, wanted to die. She had these children she had to raise. She had this husband who she loved and she was in school. You know, there were things that were happening in her life that were important to her. But I just think that at that moment, she thought the most important thing that she could do was offer her time and service to um, a cause that was bigger than than her own life. This symbolizes uh, a new commitment and a new determination on the part of the federal government to take the kind of vigorous line that will assure the rights of the Negro citizens of this nation. What we have seen in our society is this very slow eradication of empathy, where we almost pride ourselves on not being able to see things from other people's perspective. And that's why um, I think, you know, the story of somebody like a Viola Liuzzo, who made the ultimate sacrifice for some—she could have so easily— lived a very—she had this beautiful, you know, neat, tidy house on the west side of Detroit. She had this, you know, family of five children and this husband. She could have lived a quiet life and, and, and not sacrificed anything. But I think we're living in, in times that are so different. You know, when I think of what is required of the majority, how we have to, you know, for example, as a Christian, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a black Christian, how I have to fight for people being able to wear hijab or be able to live in peace. I'm not Muslim, but I have a stake in fighting against racism and uh, religious intolerance and bigotry. I have a stake in that because I don't want my child to grow up in a world where um, decisions are made based on external characteristics or your religious choices or your 
nationality or anything like that. So I think that all of us are privileged in some way. You know, I'm black, but I'm a Christian, so I'm privileged in that way. I'm, I'm heterosexual, so I'm privileged in that way. Uh, there, there's also been this kind of backlash in the last 20 years or so where the majority really is starting to believe that they are the victims, that they, because they've had to cede some degree of power, not really much when you kind of look around. I mean, really, overwhelmingly, Congress is still white. Overwhelmingly, I mean, we've had one black president in, you know, 200 plus years. It's not as if, you know, but I think that there was this real fear that, you know, white culture was losing ground. And fear makes you, I think, less apt to feel empathy. But I think that we have to really, really double down on this idea that if we fight against fear, you you just have a healthier and richer society when you have the strength to say, we do not accept the idea that in order for us to be successful, we have to hold other people back. When I look at Viola Luyuzo, who had everything to lose, as much as I must respect as I have for Dr. King and for Rosa Parks and for the countless other African Americans who fought for civil rights in the 60s, it's logical for them to fight for civil rights because you're fighting for something that you have a stake in. It's more radical when you are actually giving up privilege. What we have to appreciate is extending opportunity to black and brown people. It's not just about helping them. It's really about helping us. So I think that the way we frame this is expanding opportunity, letting people have the best education, access to jobs that their talent and their gifts afford them. That is in the in all of our best interests. We are missing out on a society when we um, tamp down the talents of people simply because of the color of their skin or because of where they were born or because of the school system where they live. We have to be committed, more committed now than ever, to give everybody an opportunity. And then just demographically, the fact of the matter is the majority is not always going to be the majority in this country. And so it's in our best interest make sure that the people who are going to be the majority, people of color are going to be the majority in our lifetimes, that we have the the best and strongest America. I mean, we're not saying that means move white people out of the way and white people shouldn't have opportunity too. It just means that we all need to have it. Right, you're saying by limiting others, we limit ourselves. Absolutely. When people have ability, we should help groom them to maximize whatever innate talent that they have so that we have a stronger America and stop this kind of balkanization that we have where we think that only our tribe is the tribe that should should succeed or have access. Everybody needs to have access. And that sounds so trite, but it's, it's, it's what we have to do if we want this country to succeed. Stephen, let's talk about after... She is killed by Klansmen who chase her down. It comes to light that one of the people in the car that chased her down, one of the Klansmen, is an FBI informant. When the FBI acknowledges this fact internally, they launch a counterintelligence campaign against Viola. 
in an effort to smear her publicly and discredit her. They say that she left her children, abandoned her children. She was a horrible mother who left them in order to be a philandering woman who was cheating on her husband with numerous black men, Um, none of which was true. And also beside the point, but uh, none of which was true. And they used this campaign to discredit her with white America. So I want to talk about this narrative that ends up coming, that bubbles to the surface after some time that our government has conspired or worked against people of color or against marginalized people. Sometimes we see it blatantly, but sometimes it's happening sort of quietly. And it really does infect the minds of Americans in going forward. Well, I mean, think about the lesson here. I mean, the first lesson is uh, if you're a white woman participating in these marches, helping out, uh, you're risking your life, right? The Klan sends that message. And then we find out they send that message at least partially with the help of the FBI, who has an informant in the middle of it. I mean, you know, imagine that, that the complicity uh, that's there. Uh, it really does go to reinforce the idea that that these messages have a very clear point, which is that there is an inequality, there's an inherent inequality between white and black, there is an inherent imbalance between white and black, and you ought not, you ought not question it. We are in a very strange era of alternative facts, if you will, of rewrite, we're in a strange era of rewriting history. Um, We've always done that as a people, rewritten history to fit what we want. The winner always rewrites the history. In this case, a privileged white elite has rewritten the history of who Martin Luther King is. Yes, he was a peaceful protester. Yes, he stood up for human rights in a peaceful uh, and and in many times cooperative way, if you will. But he was not a cooperative man. Uh, That's why he was a protester. He was, in fact, a criminal. And because he was arrested for violating law by pushing forward with his message— But people don't like to look at it that way. They choose elements of his speeches or scripts to focus in on to fit their modern-day narrative of how a black man should be in protesting, right? That is not true to who he was, and yet we have had him rewritten. How do we not lose the message that he was it's truly something trying to I, I, I call it the Christmasification of <laughs> Martin Luther King, right? Turning him into Santa Claus right. or, or the Easter Bunny or, or some other non-threatening uh, visage. And that's another important element of, uh, I think, inequality is, is taking the people who are pushing back against that inequality and using the things that they say that seem less threatening as a way of defining them in totality and taking away from the more radical elements of of who they were. And Martin Luther King was not one thing or the other. There is something cynical about the idea of making King into somewhat of an acceptable character, an acceptable protester. What he was was a resistor. He was somebody who said, this is the way it is. I want it to be like that, and I will not comply. I will not do what you want me to do. I will not sit at the colored lunch counter. I will not uh, have people sit in the back of the bus. We will not stop our protest because you tell us to. And sometimes that led to some violent ends. Uh, And those violent ends were as much a part of the movement as necessary to it as the peaceful marches like the one he led in 1963 in Washington. Well, there is a monument 
to his name and person now uh, on the mall in Washington, D.C. And I think that that is notable in that that is essentially the American government saying this is a way to be American and a, a, an exemplary American. That is, a, a, that is a, an embracing of dissent in our country. And yet there is this desire from that same level of government to suppress those who, w- who would dissent. dissent today. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, well, it's a misunderstanding uh, in some ways. And it's, Martin Luther King is not alone in that regard if you think about who's there on the mall. You had a lot of people who were dissenters. All the founding fathers. All the founders were dissenters. They, <laughs> right. That was what made them the founders of this country was – Abraham uh, Lincoln. Being Abraham Lincoln was yes. a dissenter, right? Uh, said yeah. uh, this, this awful institution that we call slavery has to end. And he risked the republic uh, to get his point across and fought a war to preserve it. Well, and ultimately um, his life. And, and it cost him his life. Uh, you know, that is – that is the quintessential American value is dissent, is pushback to say this can be better and I want it to be better and I have a right to petition that it be better. It's easy to become overwhelmed by the scope and size of the things that must change for a more equal society. But perhaps the first and maybe the most important step is to simply acknowledge the ways in which one is privileged in our country. I'm speaking in the categories uh, as as a white Christian male. Uh All kinds of privilege all over that. This is Jim Wallace, a white pastor and author who writes about the need for white people to confront the sin of racism in America. He says it's very easy for white people, even when well-intentioned, to view racism on a case-by-case basis. It gets distracting when people want to make this an individual issue. Flint showed us that racism is in the air we breathe and the water we drink. It's the toxicity of the culture. So for whites to say, wait, I'm not a racist, am I? I mean, my people came after slaves, or what are you saying about me? And no one, no one is saying that every white person uh, uh, is to blame for everything that's happened to every black person. But here's the principle, to benefit from oppression is to be responsible for changing. This episode of Created Equal is the finale of our first season. But we're committed to understanding American inequality through the lens of history, and we're committed to the art of fact-based storytelling of the American experience, that experience for all Americans. We'll be back for season two of Created Equal in just a few months. Meantime, we'll post occasional interviews to keep the conversation going and We want to hear from you. Email us at createdequal at wdet.org. Tell us what you think about season one and what stories you'd like to hear about in season two. Created Equal's executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our producer is Jake Neer. The music of Created Equal is by Will Sessions. A special thank you to journalist David Dennis, who read from Martin Luther King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail. I'm Laura Weber Davis. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for listening. WDET's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project.